Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. This is The Interpreter Radio Show on K-Talk Radio. The Interpreter Foundation exists to encourage study of the gospel and faithfulness of the church by making the latest scholarship available in its journal, publishing books, holding seminars, creating films, and by providing roundtable discussions of the scriptures. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org, where you can find all of our materials, including these radio programs that are posted as podcasts, and you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or through any of the other podcast apps on Apple and Android devices. If you like this show, tell your friends about us and write a review on iTunes or on your favorite site for podcast apps. I'm Steve Densley, and I'm joined in the studio tonight by co-host Mark Johnson. All right, I think we should have uh, Jeff Lindsay on the phone. Jeff, are you with us? Yes, this is Jeff. Okay. Awesome. Now, um, Now the question is whether we can have our other guests join us. Jan Francisco... Uh, Jan is the, is the author of an article that was, uh, just published on Friday in the Interpreter's Journal, and, um, Jeff was the editor for that article, for the Interpreter's Journal. The, the article is called Elias, Prophet of the Restoration. All right, Jan, are you with us? Yeah, sorry, that was a little... Rocky. <laughs> well, yeah, we're we're uh, trying this with two people on the phone at once. So we have Jeff Lindsay on the other line. Oh, wonderful! And Hi, um, I understand that you two have Hi. been working working together on getting this article published. Um, I, I just uh, mentioned to our listeners that this was published in the Interpreter Journal and is available on our website at interpreterfoundation.org. It's called Elias, Prophet of the Restoration. Um, one, one of the more fascinating articles that I've read recently, I, let me just introduce you, Jan. Uh, Jan graduated from Utah State University with a B.A. in History and Secondary Education. She lives in Lavender, Wyoming, with her husband Ben and their six children. She loves learning about the scriptures and ancient cultures and blogs at indefenseofwomen.wordpress.com where she relates her experiences as a woman in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this article, um, you know, it it addresses an issue that I sometimes see brought up as a criticism against Joseph Smith, and that is Mm -hmm. that in the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith talks about being visited by, you know, Moses and Elijah and Elias— and mm-hmm. critics of the church sometimes snicker at that and say, well, Joseph Smith didn't understand that Elias and Elijah are the same person. Um, Jan, why don't, you, why don't you start there? Explain to us who is Elias in the scriptures and who is Elijah and why uh, would people say that it's the same person? Yeah, so in um, the scriptures, which were originally in Hebrew, the Old Testament um, the the word was Eliyahu, Eliyahu and that is um, changed into Greek, which is Elias, and then it's changed into English, which is Elijah. And so the three words are from the same root, from the same Hebrew root. Um, so there are multiple places in the New Testament where we see Elias, and it's automatically change to Elijah, because it's talking about Elijah. Um, It will say something about the widow or um, about him at the river, and and you know the story that it's going to be Elijah. But there's other places where he's talking, especially to John the Baptist, about being a forerunner, and um, those are Elias. And in the Joseph Smith translation, um, it, it always specifies that it's Elias. And so we see Joseph He knew all of these beings that we don't know, and so I have no problem believing that Joseph Smith knew there was an Elias and there was an Elijah and that they were different, just the same as 
he knew there was a father and a son, and they were different because he saw them. But um, so Elias, as a key holder, is different from Elijah, and Joseph Smith taught about them in complementary roles. Um, Elias was, the, he, he learned from the Lord in Doctrine and Covenants 27, verses 6 through 7, that Elias held the keys of the bringing to pass of the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began, concerning the last days. And so <clears throat> that key of Elias to restore, bring to pass the restoration of all things um, in the last days is specific to him. Elijah has a different key set. He, he does the sealing power and turning the hearts to the fathers and the temple work, the higher ordinances. Elias is um, more of an Aaronic priesthood bearer, and Elijah is more of a Melchizedek priesthood bearer. Jeff, what else you, should I elaborate on there? Uh, well, what, warning, Jeff, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, Je- Jeff, what, what are some of your thoughts about this article? Well, this, this article, it's really interesting. It's um, it's a surprisingly complex topic, and I didn't really realize how many nuances and details there were, and I'm, I'm very proud of Jan for digging in because she had to explore you know, lots of scriptural references, lots of commentary from you know prophets and general conferences and so forth, look into Hebrew meanings of, of, of some words, and really understand a lot of uh, you know traditions and knowledge about these like concepts of uh, Elias, Elijah, the the forerunner, and many many themes all come together: gathering of Israel, temple themes, and so forth, and the idea of different people playing different roles, holding different titles. So we have this concept of Elias: is it a name? Is it a title? Is it a general category? And Jan kind of unpacks a lot of complicated information and gives us. A lot of insights, including the importance of Noah in the whole discussion mm-hmm. of what is Elias and who's who. And it's, it's a complex topic, but I think she does just a marvelous job of going through in a very systematic way, looking at different perspectives, different insights we get from the scriptures, what we learn from the Hebrew. And um, I think this is a really interesting article that we can learn a lot from. And also, for people that are interested you know, in the scriptures or church topics and have some interesting insights or aha moments, I think Jan's story of, of what she did and how she moved forward with this, and, and she, this is her first time writing an article for Interpreter, um, mm-hmm. I think her story would be really interesting to people out there who are also keenly interested in the, in the scriptures and what does it take? And a lot of people think, well, you've got to be a BYU professor, you know, with several PhDs in order to do, do an article for an academic journal. But I, I'd be really interested in just, maybe if you don't mind me asking Jan, how she got interested in this topic, what it, when, she, when did she realize she had something, and what did it take to, you know, get this ready for an, you know, an academic journal, peer-reviewed journal, to, uh, to tackle it? I would love to talk about that. It's been two years of this. Um, so I was getting ready for a gospel doctrine lesson on Doctrine and Covenants 27, and so I was really examining it carefully. And I realized in a flash that this is the mystery solved right here. It's in the text of who is Elias, which is always just kind of niggled at my brain. Like, is it John the Beloved? Is it John the Baptist? Who is Elias? Because nobody knows. And so... Here it is, right here. It says that Elias is the one who visited Zacharias and promised that he should have a son. And the more that I looked into that, the more pieces fell into place. And, I mean, it's just, um, that lesson was just uh, scratching the surface of what was then, you know, has unfolded to my mind as, as I've continued to study. And I don't really get to take too much credit. I, I've been <laughs> greatly blessed by spiritual insights, and I remember just walking down by our barn one day and and just having the thought, it's baptism, and I went, oh my goodness, it's baptism, it's baptism of the earth, it's baptism of each individual, it's the water before the fire, and that, like, for me, that clicked a lot with how is John the Baptist also an Elias, and how is 
Noah, the main Elias. And um, so mm. then I taught my lesson. And this lady, this sweet lady that wasn't in our ward, she got really upset when I was talking about how Elias <laughs> is right here. It's Noah. And she, she stood up and she read in the face and said, Elias is not Noah. Elias is a man who lived at the time of Abraham. And that's all we know. And she had been a seminary teacher for like 15 years. So she, you know, I was treading on sacred ground there. And, um, and I just kind of tried to diffuse it. But I went home red in the face a little bit. And I went, I need to know if what I was teaching was actually true. And so as I prayed about it, I had the answer, how else can you read those verses? And I thought, there is no other way to read that. That's what it says. And so then I started to compile all of my little points, my data points together onto just a handwritten document of what is Elias and what is this restoration. And, and then um, I compiled that and I looked at the Joseph Smith papers and just Googled Elias on there and found some really neat more insights. And then I just kind of combined all of my really casual and um, not formal thoughts <laughs> into a document that was pretty long. And um, I talked to my aunt who had lived in Shanghai with um, Brother Lindsay, and she said, I know this man, and he, he knows about things. And I said, well, I just want to know if this is a real thing. Is this an original idea? Does everybody already know this? Because I don't know. I'm not, I'm not plugged into this academic system. And so I sent him that really crude <laughs> copy of just my ideas and my sources just fully quoted, no editing at all. And and he had sent that to some reviewers, which made me bite my nails a bit. As that, that was not what I intended. Um, that was not something I was especially proud of. But um, after several, several iterations and editions and um, just maybe sulking for a couple weeks in between each one, each rejection, and then he never gave up on me. He was so kind and um, just generous with his time and his um, belief in me. Uh, we finally got to the point where it was ready, and and then it was accepted. But it was it was two years of just kind of refining and researching and and. You know, having someone who knows Jeff Lindsay is obviously helpful, but I think everybody can can um, research and study, and even if it doesn't go anywhere, it is life-changing to have the Spirit teach you in a personal way. Jan, I think that is just a, a terrific story, um, and I, I really um, hope that you can serve uh, an example to, to more people um, who mm-hmm. um, come up with you know, unique ideas and new insights. Um, when I had my first paper published, it was back in 1994, and it was just kind of the same thing. I just had been reading other scholarly articles and going back through and, and reading um, what other scholars had written. I thought, oh, well, um, what if um, somebody approached, um, you know, what they're writing about through this other angle? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I jotted down some notes and cranked up the old uh, – primitive word processor with the giant bulky <laughs> monitor and <laughs> started typing some notes and um sent it in and then they liked it and, and published it so it's yeah. um it's 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 kind of fun being in uh this little uh little academic world i hope uh hope we can see uh more from you um i do have a question um one of the things that struck me as interesting, you noted in the article that um, Elias um, doesn't exist in so many versions of, uh, yeah. of the Bible. You mentioned um, he was um, in like in, in like some of the earliest Bibles, like the Geneva Bible, mm-hmm. which was published in like fifteen sixty, uh, the King James, um, the Douay Reims, yeah. and uh, another version called uh, Darby's translation, and then he just has kind of disappeared. Um, what do you think? Um, like what that kind of factor has on our our study of of Elias and and these other other um, otherwise mysterious uh, scriptural uh, persons. I sorry, it just cut out. So tell me that last part one more time. Oh, just um, this, this idea that he's just disappeared from so many other 
so many other yeah, translations. Yeah. Where, first of all, where did you think so, to, to investigate that? I, I thought that was a fascinating approach. And then, yeah, um, same here. That's a really cool, cool detail. Yeah, yeah it was. So um, I just went to Bible.com, and I, re- and I just put in Elias, and then I clicked on each edition of it, and it, would, it only came up on those four. Everything else was Elijah. And so we really have erased him from, and that that made me wonder if that's why Joseph liked the King James Version, but I don't know how many versions were out when he was um, compiling the scriptures, but because it, it still had an Elias character in it, distinct from Elijah. Well, Jan, I wonder, yeah. could, could you summarize again really quickly, um, you were quoting from the Doctrine and Covenants, where it's talking about how uh, you know, Elias is, um, you know, the one who visited um, Zacharias. Um, and then we also learn that Gabriel is the one who visited um, Zachariah. And mm-hmm. then uh, how do we close that loop? Where is it that it tells us that Noah was Gabriel? So that's a Joseph Smith quote. He, um, he said, Michael is Adam, and then to Noah, who is Gabriel. He stands next in authority to Adam in the priesthood. And so, yeah, we have this loop. So Noah is Gabriel, and Gabriel is Elias, because he's the one who visited Zacharias. And if you read the, the visit from Zacharias, you see these same things in Noah's keys, or in Elias's keys. You see the words, by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. And you see things about baptism and remission of sins and um, the covenant of Abraham. And so this language that uh, is specific to this key is it's in um, 2 Nephi 10. That whole, sec- that whole chapter after Lehi sees the vision is there's going to be a Messiah, but before the Messiah there will be John the Baptist then there will be the Messiah, then there will be a scattering, then there will be a gathering, and then the earth will be renewed. Well, that now, is, we, we, we have often thought of John the Baptist as being a sort of Elias, or you know, being a forerunner to Christ, being somebody who's ushering in um, you know, that dispensation. Um, there's also uh, some indication that Elias may have appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, could you comment yeah. on that? Sure, yeah. So um, Elias, John the Baptist, is called Elias throughout the New Testament, and or the Joseph Smith translation especially. And so when, um, when he talks about the Mount of Transfiguration, he says that Elias and Moses were there. And then the Joseph Smith translation says, or in other words, John the Baptist and Moses. And then um, it gets a little more complicated when Bruce McConkie says, in addition to Elijah and Moses, John the Baptist was there. And so I was looking at it, and I was all hopeful that it was really Elias, like Gabriel Elias. And I looked in the Doctrine and Covenants 138, where um, just President Smith sees the vision of the the premortal world and the and the world and the spirits waiting for Christ and um, and he says he sees Noah and Elijah and the Elias who was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he doesn't say anything about John the Baptist. So for me, that is another kind of evidence towards it. It could have been three people on the Mount, just like there were three in the temple at Kirtland. Moses, Elijah, and Elias. <clears throat> so um, I think his followers, Christ followers knew John the Baptist as Elias. Christ had referred to him as that many times, and uh, so it wouldn't have surprised them to see him there and call him Elias. That's the title that the Savior had given him. Now, you also identified John the Revelator as an Elias. Could you comment on that? Sure. Um, So this is in the Doctrine and Covenants 77 when Joseph Smith asking, tell me about this in Revelations, and tell me about that. And um, <clears throat> one of them says um, that 
what do we understand by the little book which was eaten by John, as mentioned in the 10th chapter of Revelation? And then he said, we understand that it was a mission and an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel. This is Elias. So I think, so this whole idea is kind of a web, like Brother Lindsay was saying. It's, there's him as a forerunner, which we, we get that. That's how we've kind of put him into that box that any Elias is a forerunner. But he's also a gatherer and he is the angel that is like a few verses before this that says, do not hurt the earth or the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of God in our foreheads. And this is Elias, which was to come and gather together the tribes of Israel and restore all things. So Elias has this purpose of forerunning for Christ. Like I mentioned, like the baptism of the earth before the baptism of fire. He's got to, he's got to get the earth ready for Christ to come millennially. So he, it shepherds him through mortally first. He talks to his parents. He talks to John the Baptist, the parents, and gets everything ready for the mortal Messiah so that he can then come as the millennial Messiah. But he also has to gather um, his posterity. There's this um, really neat covenant in the JST of um, the Lord talking to Noah after the flood. And he says, when your when your descendants, when thy posterity accept the truth and look up, then shall let's see, then shall Zion look down, and all the heavens shall shake with gladness, and the earth will shall tremble with joy. So there needs to be a posterity that embraces the truth and looks upward for Zion to come again. And if he's going to bring the Zion of through the fire, right before the fire. He, he needs to have this posterity ready to receive it. And so he's relate, he's part of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the original recipient of that. The, the Lord tells Abraham, as it was with Noah, so it shall be with thee. Only now the covenant will be called in your name. And so we see Elias coming to the Kirtland Temple bearing the gospel of Abraham, a dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. And that's why we have this like sort of fragmented idea that Abraham is a guy we don't know about that lived at the time of Abraham. But um, Noah didn't die until 350 years after the flood, or was translated, I don't know. And then Abraham was born 247 years after the flood. So they overlapped for about a century. And so when Abraham goes to the fathers to receive his right of the priesthood as a and an um, rightful heir of the priesthood from the fathers, Noah would have been one of the fathers there giving giving that ordinance. I don't know if he was the actual one there, but he was definitely the most senior <laughs> one in the fathers. And so this overlap between Abraham and his covenant and Noah and his posterity that needs to look up and embrace the truth is part of that gathering mission. And so, <clears throat> sorry, and so the, um, his forerunner is part of it, but also his gathering is part of it. And it, just the other week, I was thinking about um, our 10th article of faith, and it is exactly Elias' keys. Um, we believe in the, let's think, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the 10 tribes that Zion, the New Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. All of that is Elias. He's going to gather Israel. He's going to renew the earth. He's going to bring Christ back. Like That, that enca encapsulates his keys or his actions through his keys that he's done um, since, since he was on the earth. And I was going to say, that is interesting. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. He ordains John the Baptist to be uh, an Elias to prepare the way for the Lord. He also has um, reached out, and we have many um, missionaries all over the world since 18, whenever, 30, 35, um, going out and baptizing and doing the water before the fire. We were told to teach faith and repentance. 
then there's baptism, and we're preparing for the Holy Ghost. And so all of these Eliases are gathering um, all over the world right now. Sorry, it's a little bit of a, it's going to get in the weeds real fast because it's such an um, interrelated thing. It's hard to just isolate one strand and, and talk about it. Oh, don't worry. It's uh, it's all good. Well, it looks like we uh, lost Jeff, and I'm just bringing him back on. Sorry, yeah, drop. Yeah, there you are, Jeff. Um, Jeff, do you have any other questions for Jan? Uh, yeah. the One of the things that I found interesting, the section you were just talking about, you returning to Joseph Smith's translation, you used a wide variety of sources. For example, you went to the Book of Enoch, um, Joseph Smith translation, and also some other scholars like Matthew Bowen and others writing in, in various journals, including Interpreter. Um, what was the, was this like a, a zigzag path where you find one tidbit and lead you to another, or did you, was that kind of your plan to just scour everything, uh, initially? Uh, no, it was just a zigzag. It was footnote mining and, um, just finding even the comments on this article have been so fruitful. There, people have posted ancient father stuff and there was even a, quote from a 1960 general conference that Joseph Fielding Smith said, Elias is Noah. And I was like, oh, where's that been? I needed that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just, I see it everywhere. And if, if there's some Elias, then I will glom onto it and, and, uh, put it in my, in my notes. So. By the way, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the great, uh, reason, one of the great advantages of publishing and getting things out there is because I was surprised. There must be a lot of people who really resonate with this article and find it fascinating because we've had quite a few comments just in like a couple of days. They have mm-hmm. a lot of meaningful comments, including people sharing interesting new finds. We have Robert Boylan sharing uh, his, one of his articles where he explored, uh, responded to critics who were saying Joseph mistakenly thought Elijah and Elias were two people when they're obviously just one. And he made a, he, he, he offered some very interesting arguments there. And you had a, you had a, I saw your conversation with him, uh, giving your viewpoints and just that back and forth and the additional insights that people bring. That's, that is oh, yeah. so valuable. So your, your well, next it's article. Such a nice, <laughs> such a nice community. I, I kind of, tremble when there's comments because I've been on blogs <laughs> and that's not always a nice place and so it just it feels like well these people are good <laughs> people are nice I'm so grateful for kind-hearted people that just want to share what they also think and and I'm happy to have those conversations well Jan you did such a great job with this article I, you know it, it it answers a lot of questions for me um, it answers questions for me I didn't even know I had um, and uh, I sure hope that uh, you'll you know find ways to contribute to the interpreter's journal some more in the future because uh, this is this is a great contribution. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to work with all of you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, can you tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Uh, for, for example, a lot of people might not realize that Lander, Wyoming does not have, um, you know, vast uh, university library resources for, for <laughs> Or a Walmart <laughs> or anything. Right. Yeah, yeah, so we live in the in the country, and it's the most beautiful life. Uh, I have six kids that are 16 to 18 months old, and I milk a wow. cow, and I sell the milk. And, I, I mean, I'm just living this farm life, but it's wonderful to disconnect from the world a little bit and just be with my family and um, there's a local community college but I, I haven't even been in the library there. I took a vacation to Provo where I was raised and um, looked at their library sources to take some photos of my sources <laughs> when I needed to. So it's, yeah, I love Wyoming. I love Lander. I would never leave um, but it's it's off the beaten path. We're we're part of the, uh, Martin's Cove is 40 minutes from us, and like the Rocky Ridge is in our area, the 
all of the handcart sites are are here in our area. Well, it's it's uh, it's just been a real pleasure to have you write this article, and I, 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 I in interacting with you, I just kind of somehow assumed. This is this is this is crazy. When I first saw the name Jan Francisco, I thought you must be from California. I just pictured you as <laughs> university yeah, student. She sounds like a movie star. <laughs> no, I was like Elder Francisco. We both served in the Novosibirsk Russia mission, and I had never met him there, but I'd heard about him. And then I realized after I met him that I liked him. And then I put my name together, and I went, "Oh no." No, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't be Dan Francisco. That's too much. But it's a sacrifice I made. So, wow. Well, and, and six. Yeah. Kids, your youngest is eighteen months. Yeah, yeah. He is delightful. Wow. Well, so, Jan, uh, we we sure appreciate you. Uh, uh, joining us this evening, and uh, just wanted to uh, let people know again of the uh, of your blog in defense of women dot wordpress dot com, where you can find more about uh, Jan and what she's written. And uh, again, I I hope that you'll uh, you'll find ways to contribute more to the Interpreters Journal. Would love to uh, read more from you. And uh, oh, thank, you. thank you for, for joining us this evening on the Interpreter Radio Show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for writing this article. It's, it ta- I know it takes, a, it takes a lot of work, and it's tough dealing mm-hmm. with you know, re- reviewers and uh, people digging into your ideas and challenging them, and you held up really well, and I really appreciate your resilience to, to Stick with it, and I didn't realize you were, you know, at that time, a mom with six kids, including very young, eighteen-month-old kids. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a great example of what can be what can be done. So, thank yeah. you for for doing oh, this. That's that's nice. It is. Um, it only made it better. All of the criticisms made it stronger. So I'm grateful for them now that I'm on the other side of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you. It's been lovely to talk tonight. All right. Thanks very much, Jan. Mm-hmm. All right. Now Thank let's, you. Let's move on to our next segment of the show this evening. Uh, this is our uh, gospel advocacy section of the, sh- of, the, of the show. And this evening we're taking on a, an aspect of polygamy. Uh, now, polygamy is an enormous topic, and uh, you know we could go on for days and days. Uh, so we're just going to hit on just one uh, small aspect, uh, something that uh, comes up sometimes from church critics, but also people who just uh, have genuine questions and concerns about the uh, church's past in practicing polygamy and the extent to which that affects us today and maybe in the eternities. Uh, Mark, why don't you tell us about what the issue is? Essentially, the issue is, um, and this is something that um, the critics of uh, the church have been doing for quite a while, is they're trying to pit um, the words of um, some earlier revelations and statements um, from Joseph Smith against later revelations and trying to show that there's a, a contradiction in um, the, the focus of the teachings there. Um, they will say that you know, some of the earlier revelations you know, don't really con- you know, uh, don't have anything to do with polygamy, and then it's, it goes on to condemn polygamy, um, and that leads to um, further revelations where it's, it's accepted in some circumstances. And you know, a lot of the critics of the church will you know, point out and, and try to point out discrepancies that, you know, may actually not exist if you actually go ahead and read the the documents you know, close enough. Um, the, 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 let's see. Yeah, the the big focus is uh, DNC 132, um, where it just talks about the new and everlasting covenant. And this is where I think the, really the, the crux of... Um, this argument um, needs to lie and where it kind of falls apart is just the idea that polygamy is not necessarily equated to um, plural marriage. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of folks in the church and a lot of people critical of the church who want to um, 
you know, conflate the two, the two things, make them the same, but they're not, it's not actually the case. Right. That the, the section 132 is, uh, is identical to plural marriage. And yes. the fact that 132 exists means, you know, and the, to the extent that it says that we need to, oh, there's, there's Jeff coming back on. Um, all right, Jeff, you there? Yes, I am. All right. Uh, so we were just saying that sometimes critics of the church will uh, argue that Section 132 uh, means plural marriage, and that the fact that Section 132 still exists in the Doctrine and Covenants means that the church today uh, still believes in plural marriage. Uh, President Hinckley was asked about this, about plural marriage, by Larry King in 1998. And uh, what the, the transcript says is, Larry King says, you condemn it? referring to polygamy, and President Hinckley says, I condemn it, yes, as a practice, because I think it is not doctrinal. So the argument is that President Hinckley was lying, and that uh, you know, Section 132 still exists in the Scriptures as canonized doctrine of the Church, and that since it is there, it is doctrinal, it's still doctrinal, and that President Hinckley was lying to Larry King and the world, and that we still believe in polygamy. We believe that everyone must practice polygamy in order to be exalted. Is that, that basically your understanding of the argument, Mark? It is, yeah. And I don't think is, – is anyone who's you know, lived through um, you know, any of you know, President Hinckley's time as the prophet and, and listened to him, just the idea of him lying is, is just so foreign to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've, I've, I've met the man. Um, you know, Steve, perhaps you have. Well, um, it would be it would be a ridiculous lie, it, it wouldn't would it? Be. Uh, it would be. I mean, and, because you know, it just be it's so easy to disprove so quickly, uh-huh. and instead they have to do some you know kind of uh, I think rhetorical gymnastics when they deal with section one thirty two. Uh, Jeff, what what is your take on that perception that section one thirty two means that all of us? need to be polygamists in order to be exalted? Uh, I think that is, is a real, real stretch. And I think, uh, you know, there, I, think, uh, I think it's absolutely correct to say that the church does not teach polygamy. Now, that we don't know what, is, what life's going to be like on the, on the other side of the veil, and what happens with, with sealings when there's multiple spouses sealed one to another. We, there's a lot of things we, we think we know and we talk about, but we really know precious little about what happens there. But when President Hinckley is saying we don't teach polygamy, we're talking about, talking about this life. We don't mean that it's absolutely impossible that, that there can be um, a man with two, spat, with, with two wives in the, in the, in the, in the future. We don't, we, don't, we don't know how all that works, but clearly the teachings of the Church right now is that we um, have ceased Polygamy. It was it was a temporary practice, as, as, and it was it's it ceased long ago. We don't teach it, and if you do practice it, you'll be excommunicated I mean, swiftly. Yeah, there there are a few ways, uh, not very many, that you can know that you're just going to get excommunicated. There's probably no more clear way that you can know you're going to get ex- excommunicated than if you practice polygamy. Right. And, and Section 132 itself, um, you know, why is that still in the Doctrine and Covenants, Jeff? Um, you know, what is, what's Section 132 referring to broadly? Well, this, this, uh, there's a lot of very valuable things in there. It's about the new and everlasting covenant, um, the, including the, the, the fact that marriage can be an, is an eternal covenant. Um, and it teaches, uh, you know, it's, it's like many parts of the, of, the, of the Scriptures, there are things that that may not necessarily apply to what we're doing today. There's great value in, in many aspects on the Law of Moses, for example, in the Torah. We shouldn't rip those out just because we no longer do animal sacrifice, for example. There's still great lessons and moral principles to be learned in, in, a, st- in a study of the Torah and a study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Even though some things have been superseded or are no longer practiced that way, but there are important teachings about the New and Everlasting covenant in, in section 132 very valuable right i mean you know section 132 verse 19 verily i say unto you if a man marry a wife by my word which is my law and by the new and everlasting covenant and it is sealed unto them by the holy spirit of promise by whom 
uh, who by him who is anointed, it shall be a full force when they are out of this world. And they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things. So, you know, this is, again, broadly speaking, what section 132 is talking about is the eternal nature of marriage. And that if you are sealed, you know, by the uh, authority of the priesthood, you know, we go to the temple uh, for this ordinance to take place. That and if you're faithful, it's been you know it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So you know it's it's something that uh, you know the the Holy Ghost has confirmed that it's you know it's a valid sealing. Um, that this is something that if both members of this uh, ritual are faithful to the covenants they've made, then the uh, the bond that exists between them will continue to exist in the next life. But um, it's only uh, you know. Partly in section 132, uh, talking about uh, plural marriage as a restoration of the things that were practiced by Abraham, uh, by Jacob. Uh, you know, something that was done in the past is part of the restoration of all things. Some of these things uh, have been practiced again in the, the last dispensation. That doesn't mean that they have to be practiced, in t- you know, all the way through the last dispensation. Right. Doesn't mean they have to be practiced by everybody in the in the next life. No, uh, and I think a lot of the spiritual gifts might fall into the same category, like speaking in tongues or, you know, being uh, bitten by a snake and being healed. Sure. Yeah, so some of these these uh, these kinds of practices or blessings or miracles, you know, maybe uh, you know occur at one point, maybe maybe not at another. But um, you know, I, I guess the thing that um, uh, well, so one of the things we can say about what you know President Hinckley's comment is uh, that you know it would be it would be utterly absurd for him to you know if he's taking the position that we've never believed in polygamy and never practiced it, that's that's really easy to disprove. And right. it's the reason why Larry King asked the question, I think, is that the, you know our church is known to have historically practiced polygamy, so it raises these questions of whether we're still doing it. Uh, so then for him to say that we don't do it um, is another thing that would be utterly absurd to deny if— um, you know, I, I mean, it'd, just, it'd be fairly simple to, you know, to, to, to find counterexamples pretty quickly, and President uh-huh. Hinckley would know that. Um, so I think that the argument that, that President Hinckley is, is lying, um, that we still believe in polygamy, still practice it, um, you know, I, 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 you know where, where, the, where the argument becomes tricky is this issue of what happens in the next life. Right. And, and I think that that's where, that's where people, you know, of goodwill um, are, are uh, you know, genuinely confused and, and sometimes distraught, uh, wondering uh, what's going to happen, you know, you know if, uh, for example, uh, President Oaks and President Nelson— um, but both had wives who have died, and they have been remarried and sealed in the temple. Um, and so there's there's this question of uh, are they are they polygamists in the next life? You know, and is that our current doctrine? Um, and you know, it's uh, it's something that Elder Oaks himself addressed um, in in a PBS documentary interview, um, July twentieth, two thousand seven, on the Mormon Newsroom. Uh, his uh, Part of this transcript from his interview is is reposted. So I'll just read what Elder Oaks said about that. He says, Latter-day Saints today do not practice polygamy. However, because temple marriage covenants are eternal in nature, some saints may have questions about plural marriage in the eternities. Elder Dallin H. Oaks, who remarried after his first wife died, explained that although we do not know everything about the eternities, we do know that if we are faithful, our temple marriage covenants are eternal in nature. And this is a quote. There are a lot of people that live on this earth that have been married to more than one person. Sometimes those marriages have ended with death. Sometimes they've ended with divorce. For people who live in the belief, as I do, that marriage relations can be for eternity, then you must say, what will life be in the next life when you're married to more than one wife for eternity? I have to say, I don't know. 
But I know that I've made these covenants, and I believe, if I am true to the covenants, that the blessings that's anticipated here will be realized in the next life. Now, uh, there, there are different implications from that, I think. Um, one of the implications is that if he and both of his wives want to live in a uh, relationship where they're all sealed together, and then he's, you know, he's got two wives, just mm-hmm. you know, like Brigham Young had, however many he had. Um, that that's something that they should be allowed to continue. If that's if that's what is going to bring them a fullness of joy in the eternities, I can't imagine God's going to prevent that. Um, you know, conversely, if they would not receive a fullness of joy in the eternities by being in that relationship, then that is not what they're going to have. That uh, you know they would have. Uh, you know, the kind of relationship that's going to bring them a fullness of joy. Um, So I would think that, you know, no woman is going to be forced, you know, compelled to be in, you know, a marriage relationship that she doesn't want to be in. No, that sounds like a pretty gross violation of uh, one's agency. Right. Um, I think the point here is that we make covenants in the temple, um, you know, we, you could the, the wording. You know, if you if you if you think about the wording, and uh, if you don't remember it, I you know encourage you to go back and you know do some proxy sealings. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a little bit ambiguous. You know, are you making the covenants to each other? Are you making them to God? Are you making them to both? Pro- probably both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and then if you're faithful to those covenants, uh, you know the the promise is that. That you will be exalted, that you'll be like our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. Um, now, we don't know exactly what that looks like, no. um, but we know that the promises are there. And, and ultimately what the promise is, is that um, you know, we'll receive a fullness of joy and, and be able to receive all that God has. Um, now, some people's wives or husbands are not faithful to those covenants. No. Now, does the fact that your wife is not faithful to that covenant mean that you're out of luck, uh, that you're not going to be able to become like our Heavenly Father or Heavenly Mother because the person that you were sealed to in this life was not faithful? And, you know, that wouldn't be fair either, right? No, it wouldn't. Um, now, we don't know exactly what that person's you know, condition or station or, you know, what, what is it that, you know, what kind of relationships are they going to have in the next life? What we're promised is that God loves us and that uh, we will be able to receive all that he has. Uh, we, we, we will be exalted. We'll have a fullness of joy if we are faithful to our covenants. Um, so it's no more true to say that, you know, people are going to be forced into these relationships uh, that they don't want to as members of this church, as as it would be, you know, in, well, it's less less true, I suppose, in other churches. I, I, I just, I always find it interesting, Mark, when you read obituaries um, of, of people who, oh, we lost Jeff again. Okay, Jeff, you back with us? Yes, sorry, oh. I couldn't get back in for some reason. Okay, uh, I was just saying, Jeff, I just think it's interesting, if you read obituaries of people who are not members of our church, how often you'll read these comments about how, uh, you know, they look forward, or maybe their spouse has already died, and that, you know, now they're going to be reunited in heaven with their spouse. Uh, and, and that's a concept that resonates with people mm-hmm. that, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be with their families forever, that, that, you know, they're going to be with their, you know, you see these phrases, eternal companion, sometimes in marriage announcements, you know, yeah. they'll say stuff about, you know. Found my eternal companion. Right, right. right. And, you know, of course, their churches don't teach that. No. that. That's not the doctrine of any other church, you know, but but that's a, a concept that resonates with people. So I've, I've often wondered, so if you have a, a Spouse that passes away, um, you know, are you are you are you putting that same phrase in your wedding announcement and you know in your obituary? Um, because you know you have the same problem. You know what happens in this next life, and for some reason, you know those people don't seem to be criticized for that, right? Because they don't have the right. same kind of history of no. polygamy in this life that, that no, our church they don't does. Have the same target. On so the that's where it's coming do. from, right? Right. Um, and and I'd, so I'd, it, I'd, it, it, it's a way of I'd criticizing in, us um, in perpetuity, and there's no way no way out of it. D- Jeff, did you have a comment on that? Uh, yes, I'd be interested in, in your opinion, Mark's opinion, on uh, one interesting approach to, to this whole issue has been uh, Valerie Hudson uh, or, or Kessler. 
um, done a couple articles at, at Public Square, or Square 2, excuse me, square2.org, um, that I have found actually very, very, very intriguing. She argues that the, that polygamy as, for, was like an, is very much like the Abrahamic sacrifice that the Lord asked of Isaac, where he asked him to do something that is contrary to the, nor- to the normal rules, to go and offer up his son as a sacrifice, to even think about that or attempt that is, you know, just very contrary to what we normally expect. And yet it was a temporary thing. It was, only, it was to be temporary, and the Lord provided an escape route for him and ended that uh, temporary request. And she sees that as analogous to what has happened with polygamy, that for a number of people, it was a, it was a true, difficult um, challenge for them that was a, like an Abrahamic test that, that they passed. But she, she points out that one of the purposes that this test uh, provides and that the, the teachings that, uh, on polygamy that were uh, present in, in the church and it can be inferred from section 132, of course, is that this could be a very, very valuable thing for the millions of women throughout history that were in polygamous relations. And there's still polygamy today in many nations on the earth. I, I know people here in Appleton, Wisconsin, who came to the United States uh, as a, they, they were a second wife or part of a, of a polygamous relationship, or their parents were, or their grandparents were. There are, are, there are many women that are in, in that. And now, if we were to simply tell all of them that, hey, there's, 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 you will never be sealed you, you, you two wives may have loved each other and loved your husband and been very happy, will not be able to be sealed because just one, and that's it. Um, she says there is the, the possibility that that may be, uh, may, may be present and that those who are in those relationships are not cast off and ignored and don't count. She feels that was a huge boon to the millions of people that have been over the world history involved in, in polygamous relationships. And of course, some of them would never want to be in that again and uh, all of that, but there's a, she, she sees a potentially very healthy message to millions of women that they are not neglected. There is that potential. And I found it to be a very interesting article, but her, her point was it served, served an important purpose to show some new possibilities and, was a temporary thing, and uh, you know we're all glad it's temporary and, and it's over for those of us here in mortality. But anyway, I'm just interested if you've uh, followed some of her works and, and thoughts. I've found her stuff to be interesting. Yeah, it, it, it is an interesting uh, argument, um, I, I, and we're out of time. But let me just say, um, I think that uh, the, the thing that resonates the most with me is to say that. Our Heavenly Father loves us, uh, that as we are faithful to the covenants we've made, that we will receive the promises of eternal life and exaltation. Uh, and we don't know exactly what that looks like, uh, but we can have faith that our Heavenly Father wants us to be happy. Join us uh, on the next hour for the Interpreter Radio Show, uh, where we'll be discussing Come Follow Me. 